and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and 10 years ago in 2011, Padre Gotuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. We've been on Zoom since the start of the pandemic and we'll be staying there until it's safe to return to the Black Box, but we will return. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you. First up is Gerald Maven, who told this recently at our tea-themed evening. Every picture in our house had water in it, possibly a rushing mountain river, but usually the sea. The only exception was one picture Dad brought back from a trip to Eastern Europe. It depicted a soldier from a local legend holding a cup to the mouth of another, a gravely wounded soldier. I didn't pay much attention to that picture. Maybe I should have. My favourite picture was the big picture with the three tall ships in the great tea race of 1866. Their sails full, the bows ploughing through heavy ocean waves coming towards me, laden with tea from China. One clipper looming huge and close, another not far behind, and a third just a light on the horizon. That was the picture above the fireplace in the living room the one I looked at the most. Every childhood family holiday was spent by the sea somewhere in Ireland. Camping in our enormous tent, six of us plus a large Alsatian Labrador. Several of my childhood summers were spent at Carn in County Wexford. Fishing with dad, playing in the sand, falling in love with Jerry the donkey for whom I, who was generally slow to spend my pocket money, would happily part with a whole 10 pence for a ride. Mum having been a child and grandchild and great-grandchild of seafarers, mainly fishermen, and having been herself a sea cadet and celebrated the tall ship's arrival in Torbay in her childhood, was careful to warn us about tides and currents. We weren't allowed to go into the water until at least an hour after we had eaten. Anybody else in that room? We were never allowed in when the tide was going out and we always went together. But I didn't actually learn to swim till I was eight. That was the day at Carn Beach when we were playing in the water as usual with the incoming tide so we wouldn't be swept out to sea. Although we knew the beach well, what we hadn't realised that day was that the currents had formed a new sandbank We were on it, and the incoming tide had cut us off. There was no way to wade back to land. My big sister could swim, and she stayed with me. My brother could just manage to get back to land, so he swam to the edge and told people I was in trouble. They stared at him blankly. Maybe his northern accent. Maybe they thought he was having a laugh. Maybe when they looked, I was underwater. Or maybe nobody believed a nine-year-old boy claiming his little sister was in trouble out of her depth. Maybe they just couldn't imagine anything beyond the lovely sandcastles they were building in the sunshine. Such a beautiful day. Surely there was nothing to fear. Meanwhile, I, edging off my sandbank, 
through deepening waters, turned my face towards the shore. I calmly decided that it wasn't all that far and it probably wasn't all that deep. I could kind of walk or bounce or pop up for a breath every step or two. And seeing no other alternative, off I set, walking, bouncing, till I was well out of my depth. And I realised this wasn't quite working out. But I was taking one step at a time. I remember a magical moment when my foot found a big conical stone and it allowed me a moment to breathe and I can still feel its slimy surface against my toes and soles as I slowly slid underwater again. Surrounded by a beautiful blueness, the light above me and a little fluffy piece of red seaweed floating by. Strangely peaceful. But apparently I still needed to breathe and I realised I knew how to float on my back. That's how far I had got with my swimming lessons. So I decided to float on my back so I could get some air. Perhaps my sister was telling me to, I don't remember. My feet and tummy floated up to the surface. And then I started to windmill my arms around, both together, like a sort of backwards butterfly stroke. I may have generated more splash than movement, but somehow I made it back to shallow water where I could rest and breathe at the same time and throw up, my sister says. I don't remember. She brought a man with a moustache. I remember that, who knows why. He lifted me up and carried me to our tent at the campsite. And I never thought till I was writing this down to wonder what my parents were doing and why they weren't supervising us on the beach that day. Those were days of trust and youthful confidence. What I do remember is sitting on a parent's knee. Was that my dad? It must have been because mum made me hot, sweet black tea in a green melamine camping cup. I remember it still, too hot to drink. Then blowing on it, inhaling its steam, breathing, waiting for it to cool relishing the sweetness and setting me up for a long, long sleep, right through the night and the whole of the next day and the next night. The following day I got up, vaguely realized I had missed a day somehow. Had my breakfast, which of course included another lovely cup of tea. And despite the disguised anxiety of my mother, I blithely insisted I was returning to the beach and the sea to play with my siblings. Perfect tea casts out fear, apparently. Thanks so much, Cheryl. And indeed, what were your parents up to while you were at the beach? We have a raft of events coming up in the coming weeks, so check out our events page on the website. There are plenty of opportunities for you to tell your story. And if you're more a visual person, you can see Cheryl telling her story on our YouTube channel, along with almost all the stories from our Zoom era, and some other bits and pieces, including a winter warmer soup recipe from Podrig, bizarrely. Now, back to warmer climes and August, when Jim Livingstone told this story. It seems such a long time ago. The theme was home from home. When our four children were little, our holidays were spent at our home from home, a caravan. 
For 10 years, we toured around Ireland, Britain, and best of all, France. The French had the best campsites by far. Playgrounds for the children, swimming pools for all the family, clean and well landscaped sites, and often bars and bistros for the mums and dads. Our caravan slept six and was quite modern. It even had a toilet and a shower. And indeed, as a special surprise for my wife, when she was six months pregnant, I bought her a portaloo, the best present she said I ever bought her. <laughs> it was our home from home. Indeed, when I surveyed its contents, each time that we left Belfast, I often wondered if anything was left in the Belfast house. Toys, bicycles, books, dolls, teddies, suitcases, pots, pans, waterproofs, all piled high inside the caravan, just as untidily as it would be in the house in Belfast. We have wonderful memories of those 10 years, the beautiful places we visited, the people we met, the gorgeous variety of food sampled, and the wonderful wine we grew to adore. Of course, our trips were never dull or free from drama. This was, after all, the Livingstone family on tour. Something was always bound to go wrong, though rarely through any fault of my own part, as you, I'm sure, appreciate. One of the first learning points for me was the caravaner's code. It took a few years for me to learn it thoroughly, but it soon became invaluable, especially for generating entertainment. The first time I pitched camp with the caravan was in Donegal. I fumbled around for what seemed like hours, and of course it was raining, and trying to manoeuvre and secure the beast to its allocated space set up the awning, connect the water, the electricity, the gas, but there never seemed to be anyone offering help, especially to an obvious novice like me. It was in a bar on a French campsite a few years later that I was introduced to the secrets of the caravaner's code. A chap from England it was who explained certain key rules. Firstly, when on a busy single carriage road, where opportunities for overtaking are few and far between, the caravaner must always maintain the right speed, not too slow, not too fast, but enough to create the longest possible queue of traffic behind for the longest possible time. A record of such achievements is kept in a little book and only shared over drinks with fellow caravaners later on with much laughter and pride. The second rule is equally important. On spotting an obvious novice arrive on site, you sit back, relax in your caravan with a coffee or beer, and enjoy the entertainment as the unfortunate novice catches his hand on the edge of the caravan, connects the awning the wrong way round, has to dismantle and start over again, searches in vain for that special spanner that fixes everything, or struggles to get the water system connected soaking himself in the process. Just when this unfortunate is nearly over his nightmare, then you jump up and run across to offer assistance. This will always be deeply welcomed, even though there's actually nothing left to do. And you can then be guaranteed help when you need it later, perhaps pushing your caravan across muddy ground. One year in Donegal, I applied the code to the full. We had been there a few days in glorious weather, i.e. it only rained every other day, when a Volkswagen van pulled up beside us. I was having my coffee and reading the paper and was amazed to see five adults 
and five children literally fall out of the small van. Then I watched in amazement as the two men in the group unloaded large canvas bags and poles, and while the three ladies and five children marched up to the camp shop, the two guys started to erect awnings on either side of the van. I could hear them grunting and groaning in their efforts. In accordance with the code, of course, I waited, and just in time went out to offer help. They smiled and thanked me for my kindness, but were nearly finished. I remarked to my wife that they spent an hour setting up. I compared it to our caravan, which could usually be sorted in 20 minutes. Single-handedly, I pronounced proudly. That evening, after eating, we sat down to play Monopoly. We had so many board games in the caravan, there was usually a major row after tea as to what game was to be played that night. Interestingly, we never played board games in our Belfast home, but in our caravan with no television, it was the main entertainment for evenings. And of course, being Livingstones, the game was played with loud enthusiasm. Everyone argued with everyone else, but it was never rancorous, just good-natured shouting. And eventually, when I had won, which was the only determinant, we would all fall into bed around midnight. The next morning after breakfast, I was enjoying my second cup of coffee. Oh my God, Paula, will you look at that? Those ones next door are leaving already. For the next hour, I watched in horror as they dismantled the awning and packed away everything into the van. And to think they'll probably do the same again in a few hours on another site. Aren't you glad we've got our caravan and not that sort of carry-on? Paula lifted her head from her book and mumbled, Yes, love. One of the men climbed into the driver's seat of the van and started the engine. There they go, the poor sods, I said as I waved bye-bye. Put, 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 went the Volkswagen up the hill towards the exit. I expected the rest would climb aboard soon. Then dumbfounded, I watched as the van turned onto the grass to another pitch, stopped, and the other man joined the driver, and they began erecting the two awnings once again either side of the van. Paula and I looked at each other, both of us blushing. Oh, Jesus, they moved because of us. Drama never seemed to be far away from us and our home from home, wherever we went. On a caravan site in the Loire Valley in France, I spent a very pleasurable few days researching our next stop on our grand tour. We tried every year to cover a different region of France. I was attracted to the Vendée region in the southwest, and had picked up a few sites near a town called Hurtan. It was 250 miles away, so it meant a six-hour drive in hot weather, a major challenge especially keeping the kids entertained that long in the car. The journey was uneventful, and by the time we were a few miles from Hurtan, I turned and noticed that Paul and the kids were all fast asleep. What I would call perfect driving conditions. I knew we must be close to the site, <coughs> but not having a sat-nav in those days, I had to rely on my map reading skills. Then I saw a gaily decorated sign by the roadside. As we drew close, I could see the name was Le Paramique, not our site, which I had rung ahead the night before and reserved a place. 
I then just caught a glimpse of some words below the site name as it flashed by. It said, Er Naturel. I was perplexed. I'd never seen that before. I wondered what it might mean. Then I saw another sign approaching. This was La Majestique. As I got closer again, I saw the words, Ooh, Naturel. Now I was really intrigued. Two more caravan sites passed by and they too had the words, Oh, Naturel. And then suddenly, while my family slept beside me, I remembered a phrase from a distant French O-level class at school. Jesus Christ, it means naked. For fuck's sake, I brought my wife and we girls to a Buddhist colony. I am dead. The sweat poured down my brow and my armpits. My heart pounded as finally we reached our site, Camping de la Côte d'Argent. I couldn't see all of the sign. It was obscured by a tree. Paul and the girls stirred. I feverishly scanned the reception area and the caravans that were visible. Everybody was wearing clothes. I was saved. I discovered later that I had inadvertently selected from my Michelin guide the only non-nudist campsite in the area. I realized with a sigh how I so nearly could have lost wife, family, and any home from home. Thanks so much, Jim, and what lovely memories of summer. Now, as you know, Tampa Nine is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. We really appreciate it. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 9com That is story at 9com I'll do a big shout out towards the end of the podcast for everyone who has helped us out. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoy. Okay, here's our third and final story in this podcast, and it comes from Gita Meaton. Gita is a doctor who lives and works in Glasgow, so it's been wonderful to have her join us regularly these past months, and what fantastic stories she tells. This one was also told at our tea-themed evening. There are one or two little F-bombs, but given its subject matter, they are wholly justified. I've had a lot of fantastic cups of tea in my life. Um, I've had some perfumey Earl Grey surrounded by American golf tourists at Glen Eagle Hotel. I've had spicy chai in a festival field and the breakfast tea my hunky husband uh, brings to ensure I'm a functioning adult before the kids wake up. But I want to tell you about the best cup of tea I have ever tasted. It was the first cup I'd had in two days since leaving the house in messy and slightly panicky circumstances. We'd just begun dinner when I felt a rather odd pop and a rush of hot liquid between my legs, followed by some interesting cramping sensations. Now, this story could go in a couple of directions after a start like that, but you'll be pleased to know I was having a baby rather than some kind of gastrointestinal malfunction. We made our way to the labour ward and buzzed the intercom to be let in. I'd worked in that unit and hardwired into my memory was the fear I'd felt when alarms started ringing and wild-eyed women were rushed along corridors on wheeled beds 
into operating theatres or crash team paediatricians hurled, hurled suddenly into quiet rooms. So much as I'd faithfully attended my birthing classes where they taught us to think of the labour pains as surges, and as much as I trusted the people ready to care for me, I was afraid. I remember seeing pictures of a giant sequoia tree which had survived forest fires, and amongst its light brown rings marking the ears or black circles where the flames had scarred the growing wood. If you'd slice me open like one of those trees, you would have seen the dark circles of terror still in me from the fires of emergency deliveries and tragic losses. The hours slowly passed, every miserable prophecy being fulfilled. She was lying face up instead of face down, resulting in hours of her bashing against my pelvis, getting nowhere but bruised and exhausted. I laboured all night with gas and air to find I'd got to only three of the required 10 centimetres. I begged for an epidural and as the merciful numbness spread up from my toes, I told the anaesthetist that I loved him and if I wasn't already married, he'd have been top pick. My uterus continued its powerful work without bothering the rest of my body at all. Andy grew tired of watching me sleep and headed out for snacks. We laughed as he opened up the bag to reveal the haul from his day's shopping trip, which included licorice all sorts, a scotch egg and a can of Red Bull. I had another cup of ice chips. Late on day two, it looked as though progress was being made. So the midwives didn't call the anaesthetist to top up the fading epidural. It can help with the last stages if the mum can feel a wee bit of what's going on um, when she starts to push. Which is a nice idea, but that meant that I went from pain-free and snoozing to full-on labour in the space of half an hour. No amount of labelling this pain a surge was going to help me now. Eventually, the wee life trying to make her way free was tiring of her ordeal. The heartbeat trace spooling out of the machine attached to my belly was slowing and dipping. And so my old boss, Dr. Stevens, a properly old school consultant in an impeccable white coat arrived at about 10 p.m. He examined me and the wavering black trace and said kindly, let's get this baby out now. There are some signs of distress and you've tried your very best, but we need to act immediately. Suddenly, we were an emergency. The black ring in my centre was spreading through my whole self as I nodded and tried to smile professionally and started to cry instead. By now, the pain and the fear were dragging me under the waves and I was drowning. So when a junior doctor arrived to consent me for emergency caesarean section, I was not best pleased. The poor chap did his best to talk me through the risks and complications of surgery while the contraction built until I grabbed the chewed ballpoint from his hand and yelled, I've done your fucking job. Give me the fucking form. I bore more than a passing resemblance to Linda Blair in The Exorcist. As the pain faded, I was horrified at myself, apologizing frantically. I'm so sorry. I'm a nice person. I don't usually swear honestly. Andy, tell him. The form signed. The power of a theatre porter compelled me through a subterranean corridor, midwives at my side. And he was left behind to change into a set of scrubs and crocs from the staff changing room. 
I stared up at the ceiling light as they wiped my belly with ocean smelling brown iodine solution, suddenly shaking from cold and adrenaline. The anaesthetist fiddled with the epidural, converting it to a stronger numbing in readiness for surgery. And Dr. Stephen started the first incision. Junior doctor opposite him on my left side, midwife over his right shoulder, handing over sterile instruments from the tray. I knew how this went. I'd been the junior on the left, holding the retractor, applying pressure when orders were issued. I'd also been the paediatrician standing in the far corner, oxygen tested, blankets warming under the light, breath held for the first cry that would signal a safe delivery, or the terrible absence of it that meant action stations. As the scalpel started its decisive sweep from right to left, I felt a horrific sensation a burning slice of pain above my pelvis. I could feel him cutting. I could feel him cutting. I can feel him cutting me. I screamed at the anaesthetist on my left, at anyone who would listen. No one did anything. I can feel him cutting me. What's she saying? She asked Andy sitting white face behind my right shoulder. He leaned in. Terror had stolen my scream, replacing it with a tiny whisper. I whisper screamed one more time. I can feel it. Finally, I was heard and over my head passed a large syringe full of white liquid. Propofol was being pushed swiftly into the vein on the back of my hand, icy and sharp. Glorious sleepiness descended and the operating theatre faded to a bright speck in the black like an old-fashioned TV being switched off. I woke alone in a different room, windows high on the walls, so that I felt as though I was at the bottom of a swimming pool. It was daylight outside and I could see a patch of blue sky and some white cloud. I had no idea how long I'd been asleep or what had happened after I drifted away on my propofol. Just the vague feeling you have when you wake up from a dream with a sense of something important you were supposed to remember. Turning my head, I realised I wasn't alone after all. In a clear plastic box on a metal frame, a tiny white wrap form topped with a pink knitted beanie was just visible. She was here. And if she was next to me with no oxygen and no paediatrician just here in my room, that meant we must both be okay. The door opened quietly and a midwife popped a kind head in to ask if I wanted a bath. All of a sudden, that was the thing I wanted most in the world. If you'd asked me two days before if I'd allow myself to be undressed and washed with a soapy flannel while lying on a plastic sheet, I'd have been appalled. But just then it was almost too perfect. To be treated like a tired child after a long day my exhausted limbs held in gentle hands, my sweat-soaked hair and face wiped clean, and a fresh nightdress slipped over my head was utter delight. Let me get you tea and toast, she smiled, leaving the room for a few minutes and returning with a tray. I found myself swimming back up into myself, reaching for the tea as though reaching for a life belt. Propped up on the pillows, I cradled that white stoneware mug. It was sturdy and thick-rimmed, scuffed on the inside from years of stirring teaspoons. The tea was standard issue, NHS bulk buy breakfast, 
industrial strength tannins and scalding hot. It was the most delicious thing that had ever crossed my lips. Better than the overpriced loose leaf tea in the five-star hotel or unfurling jasmine buds or spicy chai. So if you ask me to recommend the ideal cup of tea, do be careful. I'm likely to suggest that the very best tea is the one after 40 hours of labor, fetal distress, a failed epidural, and an emergency cesarean section. Oh, thanks so much, Gita. What a nightmare. Brilliant, as always. Now, if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. I'm going to ask a small favour. If you enjoy this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review. We would be so grateful. It helps get us noticed. Now, here's that big shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Beck Aiken, Melanie Leesner, the Maguires, Brian and Catherine, Helen Campbell-Killick, Katie Whitehead, Janet Craker, Fiona Mannion, Ashley Hunter and Damien Stone, Darren Chittick, Jade Irwin, Carolyn Beck, Sinead Gary, Linda Faith Kelly, Connie Phelps, David Laverty, Catherine Galvin, Stuart Lewis, Kevin Kyle, Paul Normandin, Samara Pitt and Jacqueline Gale. Also, and there's a long list, Debs Irwin, Carl Norney, Isil Johnson, Paul Steinbrecher, Kevin Kyle, Lizzie Whitehead, Laura Dunn, Stephen Starr, Miriam Ulliman, Peter Anderson, Catherine Cochran, John Schratwieser, Kim Callahan, also people who've given via PayPal, Carmel Devlin, Carolyn Graham and Eliza McCafferty. We say a massive thank you to all of you. And if by any chance I have left anyone off that list, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to correct it. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.